St. Petersburg, First Journey to Western Europe, Chapters 10 and 11, of Memoirs of a Revolutionist, Volume 2, by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Erin. Bakunin was at that time at Locarno. I did not see him and now regret it very much, because he was dead when I returned four years later to Switzerland. It was he who had helped the Jura friends to clear up their ideas and to formulate their aspirations, he who had inspired them with his powerful, burning, irresistible revolutionary enthusiasm. As soon as he saw that a small newspaper, which Guillaume began to edit in the Jura hills, at Locle, was sounding a new note of independent thought in the socialist movement, he came to Locle talked for whole days and whole nights long to his new friends about the historical necessity of a new move in the anarchist direction. He wrote for that paper a series of profound and brilliant articles on the historical progress of mankind towards freedom. He infused enthusiasm into his new friends, and he created that centre of propaganda from which anarchism spread later on to other parts of Europe. After he had moved to Locarno, from whence he started a similar movement in Italy, and, through his sympathetic and gifted emissary, Fenelli, also in Spain. The work that he had begun in the Jura Hills was continued independently by the Jurassians themselves. The name of Michel often recurred in their conversations, not, however, as that of an absent chief whose opinions would make law, but as that of a personal friend of whom everyone spoke with love in a spirit of comradeship. What struck me most was that Bakunin's influence was felt much less as the influence of an intellectual authority than as the influence of a moral personality. In conversations about anarchism, or about the attitude of the Federation, I never heard it said, Bakunin has said so, or Bakunin thinks so, as if it clenched the discussion. His writings and his sayings were not a text that one had to obey, as is often unfortunately the case in political parties. In all such matters, in which intellect is the supreme judge, everyone in discussion used his own arguments. Their general drift and tenor might have been suggested by Bakunin, or Bakunin might have borrowed them from his Jura friends. At any rate, in each individual the arguments retained their own individual character. I only once heard Bakunin's name invoked as an authority in itself, and that struck me so much that I even now remember the spot where the conversation took place and its surroundings. The young men began once in the presence of women some young men's talk, not very respectful towards the other sex, when one of the women present put a sudden stop to it by exclaiming, Pity that Michel is not here. He would have put you in your place. The colossal figure of the revolutionist who had given up everything for the sake of the revolution and lived for it alone borrowing from his conception of it the highest and purest conceptions of life, continued to inspire them. I returned from this journey with distinct sociological conceptions which I have retained since, doing my best to develop them more and in more definite, concrete forms. There was, however, one point which I did not accept without having given to it a great deal of thinking and many hours of my nights. I clearly saw that the immense change which would hand over everything that is necessary for life and production into the hands of society, be it the folk state of the social democrats, or the free unions of freely associated groups, as the anarchists say, 
would imply a revolution far more profound than any of those which history has on record. Moreover, in such a revolution the workers would have against them not the rotten generation of aristocrats against whom the French peasants and republicans had to fight in the last century, and even that fight was a desperate one, but the far more powerful, intellectually and physically, middle classes, which have at their service all the potent machinery of the modern state. However, I soon noticed that no revolution, whether peaceful or violent, has ever taken place without the new ideals having deeply penetrated into the very class itself whose economical and political privileges had to be assailed. I had witnessed the abolition of serfdom in Russia, and I knew that if a conviction of the injustice of their rights had not widely spread within the serf-owners' class itself, as a consequence of the previous evolution and revolutions accomplished in Western Europe, the emancipation of the serfs would never have been accomplished as easily as it was in 1861. And I saw that the idea of emancipation of the workers from the present wage system was making headway amongst the middle classes themselves. The most ardent defenders of the present economical conditions had already abandoned the plea of right in defending the present privileges, questions as to the opportuneness of such a change having already taken its place. They did not deny the desirability of some such change, and only asked whether the new economical organization advocated by the socialists would really be better than the present one, whether a society in which the workers would have a dominant voice would be able to manage production better than the individual capitalists, actuated by mere considerations of self-interest, manage it at the present time. That is, periods of accelerated rapid evolution and rapid changes are as much in the nature of human society as the slow evolution which incessantly goes on now among the civilized races of mankind. And each time that such a period of accelerated evolution and thorough reconstruction begins, civil war may break out on a small or on a grand scale. The question is, then, not so much how to avoid revolutions as how to attain the greatest results with the most limited amounts of civil war, the least number of victims, and a minimum of mutual embitterment. For that end there is only one means, namely, that the oppressed part of society should obtain the clearest possible conception of what they intend to achieve and how, and that they should be imbued with the enthusiasm which is necessary for that achievement, in which case they will be sure to attract to their cause the best and the freshest intellectual forces of the class which is possessed of historically grown-up privileges. The Commune of Paris was a terrible example of an outbreak with yet undetermined ideals. When the workers became, in March 1871, the masters of the great city, they did not attack the property rights vested in the middle classes. On the contrary, they took these rights under their protection. The leaders of the Commune covered the National Bank with their bodies, and notwithstanding the crisis which had paralyzed industry, and the consequent absence of earning for a mass of workers, they protected the rights of the owners of the factories, the trade establishments, and the dwelling-houses at Paris with their decrees. However, when the movement was crushed, no account was taken by the middle classes of the modesty of the communalist claims of the insurgents. Having lived for two months in fear that the workers would make an assault upon their property rights, the rich men of France took upon the workers just the same revenge as if they had made the assault in reality. 
Nearly thirty thousand workers were slaughtered, as is known, not in battle but after they had lost the battle. If the workers had taken steps toward the socialization of property, the revenge could not have been more terrible. If, then, my conclusion was that there are periods in human development when a conflict is unavoidable, and civil war breaks out quite independently of the will of particular individuals, let, at least, these conflicts take place not on the ground of vague aspirations, but upon definite issues, not upon secondary points, the insignificance of which does not diminish the violence of the conflict, but upon broad ideas which inspire men by the grandness of the horizon which they bring into view. In this last case, the conflict itself will depend much less upon the efficacy of firearms and guns than upon the force of the creative genius which will be brought into action in the work of reconstruction of society. It will depend chiefly upon the constructive forces of society taking for the moment a free course, upon the inspirations being of a higher standard, and so winning more sympathy even from those who, as a class, are opposed to the change. The conflict, being thus engaged in on larger issues, will purify the social atmosphere itself, and the numbers of victims on both sides will certainly be much smaller than they would have been in case the fight had been fought upon matters of secondary importance, in which the lower instincts of men find a free play. With these ideas I return to Russia. End of chapter 10 St. Petersburg, First Journey to Western Europe, Chapter 11 during my journey I had bought a number of books and collections of socialist newspapers. In Russia, such books were unconditionally prohibited by censorship, and some of the collections of newspapers and reports of international congresses could not be bought for any amount of money even in Belgium. Shall I part with them, while my brother and my friends would be so glad to have them at St. Petersburg, I asked myself, and I decided that by all means I must get them into Russia. I returned to St. Petersburg via Vienna and Warsaw. Thousands of Jews live by smuggling on the Polish frontier, and I thought that if I could succeed in discovering only one of them, my books would be carried in safety across the border. However, to alight at a small railway station near the frontier while every other passenger went on, and to hunt there for smugglers, would hardly have been reasonable. So I took a side branch of the railway and went to Krakow. The capital of old Poland is near to the frontier, I thought, and I shall find there some Jew who will lead me to the men I seek. I reached the once renowned and brilliant city in the evening, and early next morning went out from my hotel on my search. To my bewilderment I saw, however, at every street corner and wherever I turned my eyes in the otherwise deserted market-place a Jew, wearing the traditional long dress and locks of his forefathers, and watching there for some Polish nobleman or tradesman who might send him on an errand and pay him a few coppers for the service. I wanted to find one Jew, and now there were too many of them. Whom should I approach? I made the round of the town, and then, in my despair, I decided to accost the Jew who stood at the entrance gate of my hotel, an immense old palace, of which in former days every hall was filled with elegant crowds of gaily dressed dancers but which now fulfilled the more prosaic function of giving food and shelter to a few occasional travellers. I explained to the man my desire of smuggling into Russia a rather heavy bundle of books and newspapers. 
very easily done sir he replied i will just bring to you the representative of the universal company for the international exchange of let me say rags and bones they carry on the largest smuggling business in the world and he is sure to oblige you half an hour later he really returned with the representative of the company a most elegant young man who spoke in perfection russian german and polish he looked at my bundle weighed it with his hands and asked what sort of books were in it all severely prohibited by russian censorship that is why they must be smuggled in books he said are not exactly in our line of trade our business lies in costly silks if i were going to pay my men by weight according to our silk tariff i should have to ask you a quite extravagant price and then to tell the truth i don't much like meddling with books the slightest mishap and they would make of it a political affair and then it would cost the universal rags and bones company a tremendous sum of money to get clear of it i probably looked very sad for the elegant young man who represented the universal rags and bones company immediately added don't be troubled he the hotel commissioner will arrange it for you in some other way oh yes there are scores of ways to arrange such a trifle to oblige the gentleman jovially remarked the commissioner as he left me in an hour's time he came back with another young man this one took the bundle put it by the side of the door and said it's all right if you leave to-morrow you shall have your books at such a station in russia and he explained to me how it would be managed how much will it cost i asked how much are you disposed to pay was the reply i emptied my purse on the table and said that much for my journey the remainder is yours i will travel third class why why explained both men at once what are you saying sir such a gentleman travel third class never no 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 that won't do eight roubles would do for us and then one rouble or so for the commissioner if you are agreeable to it just as much as you like we are not highway robbers but honest tradesmen and they bluntly refused to take more money i had often heard of the honesty of the jewish smugglers on the frontier but had never expected to have such a proof of it later on when our circle imported many books from abroad or still later when so many revolutionists and refugees crossed the frontier in entering or leaving russia there was not a case in which the smugglers betrayed anyone or took advantage of the circumstances to exact an exorbitant price for their services next day i left cracow and at the designated russian station a porter approached my compartment and speaking loudly so as to be heard by the gendarme who was walking along the platform said to me here is the bag your highness left the other day and handed me my precious parcel i was so pleased to have it that i did not even stop at warsaw but continued my journey directly to st petersburg to show my trophies to my brother end of st petersburg first journey to western europe chapter eleven